the Big Bets on Campus podcast. 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 All right, here we go. What's up, Degenerate Nation? Welcome to the Big Bets on Campus podcast. This is the SEC West betting preview. I'm Stucky, and with me, as always, is Colin Wilson. It's, the time is here. Are you excited to finally talk? Razorback football. <laughs> the SEC. Here, it just means more. It just means more maybe our final season without before the Sooners and uh, the Longhorns come over as a Razorback fan somebody that grew up with the Southwest Conference I couldn't be more giddy and more excited plus with this podcast I get a free license to talk about Arkansas as much as I want so cash all your tickets this was an easy one cash all your tickets because Colin's going to talk about 90s Razorback stuff pretty quick Cash your bets if you mention just a mention of Arkansas <laughs> uh, within the first 90 seconds. But, yeah, I mean, I, I like the SEC West betting preview every year because I get to hear your thoughts on Arkansas. My notes for Arkansas are always super short. I'm like, I, I defer to Colin. Uh, and speaking of team experts, we'll also have a very good friend of the podcast, Brody Miller from The Athletic, who will join us to talk LSU, which I think is one of the most intriguing programs coming into this year. National title, disappointing year, lots of changes. Where do they stand? We'll have a long interview with him. We'll even talk places to go in Baton Rouge, but we'll we'll cover a lot with LSU. We'll save that for the end. But let's first start where I think we naturally have to start, and that's with Alabama. The Alabama Crimson Tide. Roll Tide Roll. Roll Tide. The Alabama clearly a big favorite to win. The SEC uh, favored to win this division, as you would expect. I believe they're right around minus 400, minus 425 to win the SEC West. Texas A&M comes in next around six to one. You know, then LSU 10 to one, Ole Miss 15 to one, Auburn 16 to one, and so on and so forth. But Alabama, obviously historically dominant team last year that won the national title. What they did, given their schedule and how they did it, Nothing short of spectacular, but they lose a lot, right? I mean, especially on offense, you lose your starting quarterback, your top two receivers, your starting running back, three offensive linemen, four offensive assistants. You have a new offensive coordinator coming in. So how is the offense going to work with all of this change? There's not that coordinator continuity and roster continuity that they had the last time they went back to back in 2011, 2012. And Saban, look, he's only gone, he's won seven total national titles. He's only gone back-to-back one time and try to do that again this year. It's a manageable schedule, but they have three potentially tricky road games. You know, they go to Florida, who I think is, we'll talk about them in our SEC East preview, but I think they're going to take a step back, but it's still in the swamp. Won't be an easy game. They go to Texas A&M, which 
most would agree is probably their hardest game of the year than at Auburn in, you know, the iron bowl a rivalry game to close out the year, uh, three potential spots where they could slip up. And if they slip up in one of those games, then your over 11 and a half win total does not cash. The defense should be loaded. I think it's going to be one of the better defenses that Saban has had during his time in Tuscaloosa. You know, they do lose a couple pieces on each level. You know, they lose Barrymore up on the defensive line. They lose Dylan Moses at linebacker, but they bring in 2020 from Tennessee, who's just a stud at linebacker. And then you lose Patrick Sertain. So I think that's one of the probably the biggest question on that defense is okay, Josh Joby slides over. Who's going to step up at cornerback? The talent is always going to be there. They reload from a talent perspective. But I think that this team is a bit vulnerable. I think the win total is a bit high. What do you see with the Tide? Absolute perfection is about the only way that you can sum up what we just saw in the 2020 season. Number one overall in success rate, number two in offensive finishing drives, and number three in havoc allowed. You're just you're not going to get this out of a college football offense ever again. And I mean, what we witnessed last year with the 10 game sec schedule, it's just, uh, it really is for, for Nick Saban to tie bear Bryant with a season like that is, is a heck of a statement. And you know, that he's fired up to probably, you know, he, he's won more national championships than anybody in college football all time, but now he's got the chance to be the all time winningest Alabama coach. Not really sure it's going to come this season. You mentioned it's never happened back to back those years after he wins a national championship. There's a loss mixed in there. And I think we, you know, we focus on the future here. And the future is that only 26% of this offense comes back. Brian Robinson at running backs got some skill there. Listen, they're they're talented all over. Jaleel Billingsley is coming back at tight end, even though he had some disciplinary issues that kept him out of the first week of practice. But really the big news is offensive coordinator. Steve Sarkeesian is no longer there calling the plays after a couple of years, moved on to Texas. Now Bill O'Brien from the NFL, uh, Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, uh, there's all these names that kind of float around those trees. And now Bill O'Brien comes in to to do the offensive coordinator position, and it's going to be interesting to see if Saban stays hands-off with the offense. Pete Golding has had some, I don't know, not issues, but there's been some problems with the defense over the last two years, and Saban focused all his efforts on Pete Golding. I wonder now if that comes back to Bill O'Brien, but Saban has said through camp, like Bill O'Brien's a pretty smart guy. He can handle himself. And I don't think schematically this is going to be that big of a problem. I know that they only return 26%, but schematically Sark used the 12 formation more and more last year. That's a two tight end set. You look at Bill O'Brien, what he did in the NFL, the Houston Texans ran 12 more than any other team in the league. So I don't think schematically this is going to be that big of a change. It's just really the turnover, all of the positions, and you have to expect some decline. I know John Mechie is there, and if you have a chance to go watch on a film on John Mechie, the best blocking wide receiver I've ever seen. You want to know why Devonta Smith won the Heisman? Because John Mechie was setting blocks 18 yards down the field. So definitely a, a big one there, and it's time for him to shine. And there's plenty of other wide receivers. We're going to learn their names. The offensive line, little, I got a little bit of a pause here on them. Alex Leatherwood, 862 snaps at left tackle, gone. Uh, Deontay Brown, 828 snaps at left guard, gone. Uh, Landon Dickerson, 685 snaps at center, gone. And I know the national championship preview that I wrote, you know, before the Ohio State game was about Chris Owens playing center and that he got 200 snaps, but he was the worst run blocker and the worst pass blocker graded by PFF out of all the offensive linemen. So 
Bryce Young might be running for his life uh, against Miami's defense. Uh, he might be running a lot. We got to see what they've got on the offensive line. So if it's a year to fade Saban, not really a, a good year to, you know, you can't really make a lot of money fading Saban, but this is exactly not the kind of team that you want to play on. Defense is loaded. You already mentioned it. Toto coming in from Tennessee. He's really turning heads already. Pete Golding is still their defensive coordinator. I mentioned that with Saban. Hey, Saban handpicked him from UTSA. You and I were betting on UTSA four or five years ago because Pete Golding ranked top 20 in defensive havoc every single year. Meep, meep. That Roadrunners defense was was great, and, and we knew that Golding was going to end up at Alabama. Uh, they had a top 20 havoc rating. I expect that to happen again this year. The problem with me in Alabama is that this team is priced like it's still 2020. Uh, their futures are priced like it's 2020. Their conference futures are priced like 2020. Their win total at 11 and a half makes you think that Devonta Smith and Mac Jones and Leatherwood and all the other names are still there, and they're just not. So, you know, the play is under 11 and a half. Now, where does the loss come? Texas A&M has a great shot at home. Lane Kiffin always is going to have a game plan that's going to give Saban fits. Uh, so I think the better bet, instead of taking under 11 and a half, pick and choose your spot to play a money line. Texas A&M should be plus seven and a half at home. Pretty good spot. We'll see what they got at quarterback. Uh, they definitely have explosive uh, running backs. We'll get to them. Uh, Ole Miss definitely going to be, you know, underdog money line worth some money here. So it's just really how you want to play it. There is a no number out there on Alabama to not make the playoff. You know, I believe it's around minus 140, is, I believe is what I saw. That's actually not a really bad bet. You can hedge out of that with the SEC championship game. So uh, I'm not buying Alabama. They're priced like it's 2020, and it's just not. And I'm going to tell you what, if I had a barometer up your ass to say whether you were giving effort or not, it was about 50%. Why did you push yourself? I mean, I personally went under 11 and a half just because, you know, at Auburn the last game of the year, who knows how good Auburn's going to be. A lot of changes, but it's rivalry game at Auburn. You know, at Florida, the swap's not going to be easy. At Texas, it's probably the likeliest loss. And, yeah, old Miss, maybe Miami. I mean, who knows with injuries and, and what happens. I'd rather – and I make the number 10, like, closer to 10 and a half. So, yeah. I'm going to full – it's a full win total over. I personally went under 11 and a half because, also, if they lose a game at Texas A&M and they don't win their division, we've seen it before, and they don't go to the SEC title. They could still go to the college football playoff. So, I think they drop one along the way, and that's just – Alabama's going to be loaded. They're the best team in, in the country by most power ratings. But I just think that there's some questions. We'll see how great Bryce Young is. I mean, anyone you talk about that's going to be starting a quarterback for Alabama in almost every position is highly touted, highly regarded, just an absolute stud. Uh, but new quarterback, new coordinator, new assistants, a lot of moving parts. You know, they have one of the best now tackles in all of college football, but he's moving position. So there's just a lot of moving parts here. I think they end up dropping one. Now, that's just me surmising, but I – more importantly, I make the number like 10 and a half, 10.6, which is just adding up the win probabilities of each game along the way. And they so can still listen, win the national title and go 11 and one. I mean, a question I have to ask you is being a big part of what we do at Action Network from an NFL perspective and a big part of you and me betting against the Texans a lot. Do you have any like feelings about the Bill O'Brien hire? I mean, he's going to run a lot of 12. He's going to run tight ends. I you know, I, don't, I wasn't that impressed with the Texans offense throughout the years. And, and here's where I think the fate on Alabama is going to be because of Bill O'Brien. Clock management and the, de the decision to go for it on fourth down and play selection on fourth down and, sh and third and short. So do you have any like NFL like takes from Bill O'Brien's time at the Texans that could you know affect the way this Bama offense goes? Yeah, I mean, I, 
I don't think that it's he's it's going to be a massive drop off from a play calling perspective. Um, and I'm sure Saban's going to have a lot of influence on some of those, you know, most of those other decisions. Uh, but it's, I think it's really going to come down to the quarterback play and how the offensive line comes together. Look, the offensive line is super talented. I mean, if you look at the recruits that they brought in, you know, the top recruits in the SEC, it's these massive freshman tackles that may may or may not crack the starting lineup early on in the season. But the offensive line, it, it's a little bit of a question for me. I mean, they have three – they replaced three starters. Now, there's experience – coming back you have you know two guys who are projected to be starters who were you know who filled in um in the past or you know fourth and fifth year guys they've played but they've been part-time starters for a reason um now they're still obviously highly regarded and highly rated but there could be a little drop off and then you're breaking in a new quarterback you know there's a lot of new assistants too just how is everything going to gel it's hard to tell now and how good is right so we don't really know right now we know We've seen when he came in, he didn't really do much because it was just in mop-up duty. So you can read reports on what he's doing in camp, but we're never really going to know how good he's going to be this year until he gets in the game. So just a lot of uncertainty. Bama is still obviously dominant. We're nitpicking when it comes to Alabama, but uh, I don't think there's going to be a massive drop-off with the play calling. It's really going to come down to how all of everything meshes and gels, and that includes the assistance and, and continuity and all of that. But the play calling should be fine. It's just it's going to come down to execution, in my opinion. All right, let's move on. There's only so much you can talk about Alabama. I mean, it's, are they going to lose a game or not? And I think they end up losing a game. But let's move on to Texas A&M. The Texas A&M Aggies. A really intriguing team this year, mainly because this is a team that's very, very loaded in a lot of places on defense, the skill position. I think they might have one of the most underrated wide receiving groups in the country. When you talk about guys coming back from injury, you look at some of their recruits who I think can shine. One of the best tight ends uh, in college football. Their running back room, led by Isaiah Spiller, also loaded and deep. So skill positions, defense, all of that is loaded. The biggest question with this team in year four of Jimbo Fisher, and look, he won a national title in year four at Florida State. All of his guys are here now is the quarterback position. You lose Kellen Mond, a a three-and-a-half-year starter. Who's going to take over at quarterback? It's still not known yet. You have Haynes King, who, you know, if you're going to go more spread and he gives you a kind of a dual threat and is the the faster guy. And then you have Zach Cazada, who's more of the, he has the big arm, more of the pocket passer. That battle might go all the way up until opening week. So who's going to be the quarterback? And then what does the offensive line look like? The offensive line was such a strength at Texas A&M. Now you have, you know, you lose a lot. You lose four starters there. You do have one of the uh, best tackles in all of college football coming back, but that's four new starters. On top of that, you have, you know, this new quarterback who has to come in is going to have a green offensive line. You bring in a Tennessee transfer to help at one of the tackle spots, which I think helps. And these are all, you know, Jimbo Fisher guys, highly talented, highly regarded. So the talent level is really high and the potential is really high. Really comes down to this quarterback position, and if the quarterback, whoever they choose, can reach his potential and ceiling in year one, this is a legit national title contender. Now, it's, obviously, it's a loaded question. Hey, it's a new quarterback going to come in replacing a three-and-a-half-year starter. But the thing that intrigues me about Texas A&M is that despite Kelamon going to the NFL, is that I thought that his ceiling was 
sort of limited. Like I didn't think he was a national title type of quarterback. You know, we saw his numbers on the road and, you know, I mean, look, I'm, I'm semi nitpicking here, but we're talking about going from really good and the team that they, they finished number four in the AP poll last year. So they were outstanding, but to elevate this offense to the next level, I think the skill positions help. How much does the offensive line drop off and where does this quarterback play end up on a scale? I think is going to go a long way in determining where Texas A&M goes. What are your thoughts on the Aggies? It seems like it's our third year in a row where we've said, this is the year that Texas A&M can challenge Alabama and win the SEC West. Then it never happens. And they always get 17 down in the second quarter because they can't get into a mode of throwing haymakers with spread offenses. And that leads me to question, has the game of college football from an offensive perspective left Jimbo Fisher behind? Hey, don't just be a f- support. Just keep fighting with us. We ain't quitting on you. Please don't quit on us. You know what I'm saying? There's no reason to be nasty. He runs a pro-style offense. He believes in a fullback. He believes in a tight end. And he believes in the play-action pass. Now, the great news is, is Aeneas Smith moving back out to wide receiver has made room for Isaiah Spiller. And then... You know, the, the kid behind him, Devin uh, Ashane, uh, I mean, the numbers Ashane, just pop. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the numbers just pop off the page. He averaged 5.2 yards after contact and 43 attempts. Uh, his his entire elusiveness numbers, missed tackles. I, I know Isaiah Spiller is probably the best running back in the SEC, uh, but there's some true talent behind him. So this is a – I think maybe the most explosive offense the Jimbo Fisher has ever fielded. And the problem is, is now we got questions on the offensive line and we don't know who's going to win between Haynes King and Zach Calzada. You were right. This is going to go to the very end. Haynes King is going to be the one that's going to be able to get a, you know, move around and get out of a pocket and cause some disruption. But then again, Zach Calzada is the one that's got the arm that can run the play action pass like Jimbo Fisher wants that can throw the ball 40 down 40 yards downfield. So it's going to be interesting to see what we do here. I, Jimbo Fisher just refuses to, to get away from the pro-style offense. And, you know, he he's really good in slugfests where offenses are slow and there's not a lot of quick strike. But teams like Alabama with that kind of offense, they, he just can't keep up. Texas A&M is not built to come from behind. You get up 14 on them, they're not built to come from behind. So I think that's something interesting to watch. The defense is loaded. Nine of the top 10 tacklers are back. They were top 20 in Havoc, top 20 in sack rate. You know, they they can easily knock off Alabama at home. This should be about seven and a half point dogs. The, the thing is, is they've got to be able, you know, when boxers get into the ring, that first minute, it's just all flurries. And Texas A&M has got to be able to find their second and their third breath when they start getting into these games against Ole Miss and Alabama, where the haymakers and the deep bombs just keep coming. So, you know, I project them at 9.1. Totals at nine and a half. Uh, they're going to be seven and a half point dogs against Alabama. So if you like Texas A&M to win the West, uh, you know, you can obviously purchase them uh, at division odds. But I think a better taking a game of the year number right now, which I think is over a, a touchdown, is probably the, the, the best bet, uh, especially if Alabama has troubles covering against Miami. I think that price against Miami is way too high. And so that game of the year number might be at a premium right now. But they have the explosive weapons. It's going to come down to is Jimbo Fisher going to, you know, which quarterback is going to go with. And if he goes with Haynes King, is he going to change up his offensive style a little bit? They definitely have the weapons to win the West. Yeah, you get Chapman back for, from injury as well at wide receiver. I mean, I just really love their skill position. And their secondary now is a lot more experienced. We've seen their secondary have holes in the past and kind of vulnerable in the back end. They've always been really good against the run. I just think this is a full, this is a complete 
defense. The Mike Elko 425 was 11th in Havoc. That is a constant every single year. Mike Elko, one of the best defensive coordinators in the nation. Yeah, and, El- and Elko, I'm still surprised he's he's still staying there. I don't know how much longer Clark- he's going to be there. but Clark Lee got a job before him as a head coach, right? That was his yep. protege. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Win, to- win totals, you said under 9.5, like minus 120, minus 125. I, you know, I think that's close to about right. And I think that if you want to buy this Texas A&M team, you want to buy the upside if the quarterback works out in some way. You want to buy them now instead of waiting. More on that later. But let's move on to a team dealing with a lot of change this year. And that's the Auburn Tigers. The Auburn Tigers. War Eagle. Win total under 7 minus 120. It is Bo Nix season again. Bo Nix season in full effect. <laughs> in uh, you're going to be hearing that. Uh, I love people love when they hear that clip. But there's a new coach in town. Brian Harson is here. He's going to run a more multiple pro style offense. Uh, there's a new staff. There's new schemes on both sides of the ball. Big big change on this with this offensive scheme. I mean, even from a, a running perspective, and you have Tank Bigsby back in the backfield. You know, it'll be more inside runs than outside zone. Just a lot of things are changing. Bo Nix does get Bigsby back and a very experienced offensive line, but it's an offensive line. It's one of the reasons why I think you know, there's a number of reasons why I think Gus Malzahn had to go and it was time. But the mm-hmm. offensive line recruiting has just been poor for SEC standards, and they just were too small and not as talented up front. So I'm not sure this unit can really handle the elite of the elite in the SEC. But you do have more experience there up front this year, at least. The problem is you're replacing your top three receivers. So you're losing your top three receivers, and then you have this you know, brand-new scheme, brand-new coach. How much can of a jump can Bo Nix make? We talked about Kellen Mond home road splits. I mean, go look at Bo Nix's home road splits. <laughs> great at home. He's been horrendous away from home. But how much of a jump can Bo Nix take, uh, which is you know, for Auburn to pull a couple upsets, maybe have – a special nine to 10 win season here. Um, I think this number is about right. What are your thoughts on Auburn this year? Yeah, well, Gus Malzahn wins the Music City Bowl, and now they had to keep him for another year, just delaying the inevitable, right? I'm calling plays. I'm not calling plays. Chad Morris is going to come in and take the fall. Like, it just, I don't know what's going on with Gus and this whole, you know, trying to escape taking responsibility for calling the plays, but now that's Central Florida's problem. Auburn went out and got, a coach from Boise, which is quite interesting because the whole Arkansas State and Boise State seem to like feed into the SEC. It's quite amazing. So Andy Avalos, Butch Jones, you guys are going to be the next ones in the SEC in the next couple of years. But I think it's really important to understand that this is probably a coaching upgrade. If you look at Harson's numbers, I mean, the one year he was in the Sun Belt at Arkansas State, he won the Sun Belt Championship. He won three Mountain West titles. Boise was always in contention to be the New Year's Six team, you know, consistently on a year by year basis. He dominated recruiting for, you know, for being from Boise with a blue turf and, and having to deal with USC and all those other Oregon on the West Coast. Like they did really well. And, and I think this is a really good hire. But where I really was convinced that this is good for Auburn is when I started looking what Harson did with quarterbacks in his time at Boise State. Every year, they ranked top 35 in pass plays that exceeded 20 yards. They were an explosive pass unit every single year. It doesn't matter who the quarterback was. They were always top 35 in number of uh, pass plays that went over 20 yards. But more importantly, I went and calculated up. 
every single season for every quarterback that Harson coached at Boise State, they had a differential between big-time throws and turnover-worthy plays. The total differential was plus 46. They just didn't make mistakes. You pivot that into Bo Nix. I mean, he's got his own little jingle on this podcast, Bo Nix season full effect. Those road turnovers will cost you a game. It's cost me a lot of money over, over the years. And I think, you know, when I look at a number like plus 46 for the quarterbacks of Boise State, considering the talent that he's had at that position, this is a good thing for Bo Nix. It is bad that they lost their top three receivers, three amazing receivers, Seth Williams and Schwartz. And, uh, but, you know, Tank Bigsby is back. You want to know if Tank is going to lose some touches. Boise State ran, their rush rate was about 4% less than what Gus Malzahn was running. It's like a 51% to a 47%. So, you know, if Tank Bigsby is going to get less carries and Bo Nix is going to throw more, then Bo Nix is really going to have to improve. Uh, you know, the defense is under new management. We have to mention that Derek Mason, you know, uh, freshly fired off of Vanderbilt, comes in just to be the defensive coordinator here. Actually, I think that's a really good hire, too. It takes the head coaching responsibilities off of him. I seriously doubt Harson's going to be involved in the defense, so I expect – uh, you know, some improvement there. And the thing is, is this is a new scheme and we like to fade teams that have new schemes. But if you look at the schedule, Akron, Alabama State, before they play Penn State, I'm not too worried about Akron, Alabama State burning this Auburn defense. All of this positivity that I've just given you about Auburn, I'm not playing any futures on them. I'm not going to bet them week one and I'm probably not going to bet them for a while. And the reason is because Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC came out and said, I want every team to have an 80% vaccination rate. You need to be above this number. Harson comes out. I know this was a couple of weeks ago at SEC Media Days. We're at 60%. That's not even close, right? And I'm not screwing around anymore. This whole COVID thing that we went through last year and this whole scrambling five minutes before kickoff to find out who's sick and who's not and whose girlfriends got strep or whatever was – it is ridiculous here to try to handicap as a, as a sports investor. I'm not messing around with teams of Auburn that are at 60% vaccination rate. I like Harson coming in as coach. I think Bo Nick should improve. We should see if he should get a chicken sandwich deal. I see Bo Jangles is with JT Daniels. So maybe Shake Shack or uh, Chick-fil-A is looking for somebody. We'll see if that helps Bo Nix. It's Bo time. Boom. Like a powder keg in your mouth. Southern style. It's a no play from a futures perspective. The number is right in the win total department, but I actually think Auburn's going to improve. The, the trench needs to be worked on, though. You're right, though. Trench, both sides of the ball. A lot of question marks there. Yeah, I mean, the defense moving to a 3-4. I like the secondary. The secondary has a lot of yeah. talent with McCreary and company. They're going to move to like a 3-4 bear defense. So it's going to be, again, big change on defense. Like the scheme changes are, are pretty drastic. And they lose Truesdale, who just transferred suddenly. Um, he was running with the ones at the starting nose tackle before. There was two defensive tackles. So, But there's some talent on this defense, but there are some transfers that are going to hurt. I like the secondary how quickly can they get up to speed? Now, the first, having two easy games to start helps, uh, but there's a lot of changes on both sides of the ball and a new head coach. I think it's a wait-and-see team. My win total is right around, right under seven, which is what this implies. If you look at their schedule, they're at Penn State, at LSU, you know, at Texas A&M, at Arkansas. I mean, those are four games that they could lose on the road. Their other road games at South Carolina, so it's a brutal road schedule. Penn State, LSU, Arkansas, Texas A&M. When you consider, they get Alabama and Georgia at home. So the schedule is tough because you're Auburn and the schedule is always going to be tough. So it, I'm a little under seven. I think it's a wait-and-see team. 
if anybody wants conference realignment with divisions and stuff, it's got to be Auburn because every other year Alabama and Georgia's at home or Alabama and Georgia's on the road. I mean, if anybody wants a shakeup to schedules, it's Auburn. Yep. Uh, I mean, let's move on to our next team here, which maybe uh, they could benefit as well uh, from a conference lineup. You could speak to that better than anyone else. Arkansas. The Arkansas Razorbacks. Win total. You know, a couple weeks ago, I saw it over six plus 130-ish. Today, I right. saw it over five and a half minus 120. Essentially, you're betting, can they get to bowl? Can they get the six wins and, and guarantee a bowl? Won't go too much into it other than they have their away games, Georgia, Ole Miss, LSU, and Alabama. Woo! Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Well, they get Texas, and they get Texas A&M and Arlington. So they got Georgia, LSU, Alabama, Texas A&M, Ole Miss, uh, all the way from home. Uh, they do get Pine Bluff in, in Little Rock. They, can't, they couldn't, play that game at, <laughs> couldn't play that game at home. Uh, so I'll let you go into Sam Pittman in year two and how much of an improvement, and uh, just take it away. Woo, pig suey. Absolute dumpster fire, dumpster fire. I don't know how we win a game the rest of the year. Just blow the program up. Give us a death sentence. Collins talking Razorback football. It's like he's going to get me hot about this ridiculous bullshit how we still have to play a game down in a glorified high school field in War Memorial Stadium. And it it actually costs us like $2 million to travel the damn band, everything, just because all of these fans from Central Arkansas Don't get me started. All right. So, yeah, we still play games in Little Rock, but at least we've moved our conference games out of there. Monster turnaround for Woo Pig Suey. Sam Pittman rebounds the entire program. I know it was a three and seven record, but consider two things. The Auburn game was completely stolen from us. Should have been four and six. But who cares about straight up records when this is a gambling podcast? They went seven and three against the spread. Uh, Pittman was playing a CEO type, brought in Kendall Bryles to call the offense. Hands off, it's yours. Uh, Brought in Barry Odom from Missouri to call the defense. Hands off, it's yours. Barry Odom is a joke. Pittman, his whole job is recruiting, offensive line, and player development, and player relations. And it pays because these guys play out of their mind for this coaching staff. The numbers are horrendous on defense, especially. Like 101st in success rate, 101st in defensive havoc. But every time that Bumper Pool and Grant Morgan are making tackles. There's nine other hats around them. Uh, Grant Morgan, Bumper Pool, two defenders that are back. They elected to come back super senior for Grant Morgan. Two of the top five tacklers in all of college football. That is a plus for Arkansas. I think what most people want to talk about, though, is the offense. And they should. K.J. Jefferson, one of the best dual threat quarterbacks in the nation. And he lines up with Traylon Burks, who you could call him a wide receiver. You can call him a running back. You can call him whatever you want. He should be a first-round draft pick. If I was in the NFL sitting around as the Ravens or somebody like the Bucks or somebody that was going to go low first-round pick, I'd be all over Traylon Burke. So, uh, you know, K.J. Jefferson is going to take over for Felipe Franks. He did so in the Missouri game last year. Um, and, and after that, we got Traylon Smith running the ball. He has shown some bursts of explosiveness, lots of yards after contact. I think one thing that surprised everybody was a transfer of Mike Woods. Mike Woods was a highlight reel at wide receiver last year for Felipe Franks. He transferred out to Oklahoma. A little bit of a mystery to everybody that he left the Razorback program, but I think it was just opportunity. And the fact that, you know, there was someone telling him, you need to transfer to Oklahoma for a team that's going to contend for a national championship. If you do some reading 
on what's going on in OU's camp right now. Spencer Rattler's favorite wide receiver is Mike Woods. So I think Mike Woods leaving Arkansas is a really big deal to, to the Razorbacks. Uh, but I think, it, you know, Mike Woods kind of knew that he wanted to go catch balls with Spencer Rattler. The defense with Barry Odom, just some some really bad numbers here outside the top 100. And like I said, sack rate, they can't control the trench. Uh, they're letting teams push them all up and down the field. Red zone defense, you know, they finished 64th in defensive finishing drives. Uh, the offense really carried the water last year. The defense plays hard, but I think if we're going to get to a handicap on Arkansas, I do think that they're going to make a bowl game. Uh, we made the Texas Bowl, got canceled by COVID. This team is hungry to make a bowl. They're going to play their ass off for Pittman. But this schedule is really tough. Texas coming in week two, Brutal. tough. Georgia Southern triple coming in the next week, not easy. And Texas A&M on a neutral site to follow that. That is not an easy thing for these coaches to get through, especially getting prepped for a, a Georgia Southern triple. And I know Georgia Southern's lost a lot, but this is still a triple option that most of these players have never seen before. And I'm not sure the defense is ready for it. So it, here's the deal. I'm not betting on Arkansas futures because of depth. And that may sound like a cop-out, but if KJ Jefferson gets hurt, I can't even begin to list off the name of kids that are so below replacement level quarterbacks. If Traylon Burks gets hurt, there are so many wide receivers. There's a little bit of skill there, but it's below replacement level. Traylon Smith at running back, if he gets hurt, below replacement level. Now we are Pittman. It's going to take Pittman two or three years to reload. The end of the Bielema era, he stopped recruiting. We're finishing dead last. Chad Morris comes in. It didn't get any better in the recruiting department. You just don't go overnight. Now, this day and age, there's the transfer portal. But, you know, Pittman, we just have not filled the cupboard in case a KJ Jefferson gets hurt, in case a Traylon Burks gets hurt. You look at this schedule, people are going to get hurt. There's going to be injuries, and uh, you can't handicap injuries. But at the same time, what I can handicap is value over replacement player, and Arkansas does not have the depth to recover from injuries. So six is where I think they'll finish. I think they will go to a bowl. This team is highly motivated, and even though the defense gets pushed around, they hustle more than anybody else in college football. So it's a no play for me. I would play the over. I want to play the over, but you're making a bet that K.J. Jefferson will stop taking hits. He loves to take hits when he takes off from the pocket. He needs to mature in that aspect and grow. He's an explosive player all over the field, but he's got to stay healthy. Yeah, I mean, when I when I did look at this team, by the way, did you have, did you have a shirt for 2020 Razorback 7-3 and three against the spread? <laughs> so when I did look at them, I you know, I said, how much can Pittman, you know, he's an offensive line guy. How much can the offensive line, yeah. which has been a, which has been a, a problem, uh, but this is his second year. How much can the offensive line improve just based on his coaching? That's big because if that offensive line could improve, I mean, they gave off just a ton of sacks last year, ton mm-hmm. of pressure. It's an undersized unit for, our, for you know, an SEC team. If the offensive line could take a big step forward, it's going to really help the offense. But my biggest problem is just, number one, I hope that they play. They also need to just play more man on defense, I think. But that's a a topic for another day. But they have, I mean, you look at their schedule. If you assume they lose to Texas, they don't beat Texas in week two. You know, and then they they got A&M in Arlington. You're at Georgia, at Ole Miss, at LSU, and at Alabama. I mean, that is brutal. So what it might come down to you know, to get to six, there's a good shot. It comes down to a game against Missouri at the end of the year. So why tie up your money is my thought process. Maybe they could finally beat Missouri. They've lost five in a row to the Tigers, but that game will be at home. I don't think it's in Pine Bluff. Um, I, and I think that there's a good chance that could be for Bulge. Maybe they're at six there, but 
with that schedule, it's not like they're gonna be playing. They're, they're getting to eight or nine wins this year. That Missouri game, if you if you want to take a little quick YouTube break and go watch highlights from that Missouri game that ended last season, that's the prime example of why I'm not investing any money on a team without depth because. Grant Morgan gets hurt, comes out of the game. Bumper Pool gets hurt, comes out of the game. And Missouri comes back from two scores down. And then we had no answer for the rest of the game. Uh, Missouri was able to put up 50 points on us because we lost our top two defenders on defense. And we just didn't have any depth to take it over. It was just and, – and, you know, that that depth is still not there. This is still a play on team when they're healthy. I might be able to be talked into it with Texas – considering Sark keeps making comments that we're not at the level that I want us to be and the quarterbacks. Don't, but we'll see what happens with Texas, but uh, you know, Arkansas still doesn't have the depth and that Missouri game that lost last year to them up in Columbia. It's a prime example of how we're just not ready to hang with the big dogs from a depth perspective in the sec. All right. Fair enough. Let's move on to Mississippi state. The Mississippi state bulldogs. Went total over six minus one fifteen. Mike Leach year two. Mike Leach is a monster. Now, look, let's give Mike Leach this. Last year, he was coming into a school and program and doing a 180 on offense, a complete change in a COVID-shortened preparation year. And then then they had that LSU game, and it's like, whoa, how how do they do this? Then, obviously, they came crashing down down to earth. Their offense was awful. Their defense scored, I believe, 14% of their touchdowns for the year. That was the highest in FBS. But it's year two now. You get a full spring, full camp. How much can the offense improve? If you go back to Washington State on the Palouse when Mike Leach was there in his first two years, first year they averaged about 20, 20 and a half points per game. The next year, 31. So how much can the error rate improve? Especially if you consider they have a quarterback back, maybe. It's a quarterback competition here. Will Rogers, who did show some improvement as the year went on. It was a lot of just, a lot of dink and dunk. Um, not much down the field, but you'll get that with the air raid. That's a great point. We were like one of the most constipated offenses on earth. And, you know, we... Uh... And then also it looks like Chase Lovers, a South Alabama transfer. Those are one and two, according to Leach and recent reports. The defense should be solid. They're 3-4 defense. It's just a Mississippi State defense. I mean, last year was very underrated unit, kept them in games. But it's how much can that offense improve? An offense that also started four freshmen last year. My only beef is that I just – look, and it's a lot of changes. We could, I didn't even talk about the offensive line with all their blocking scheme changes as well when you introduce this new offensive scheme. I just don't know if the air raid can really work in the SEC like this, like how he wants to run it. They're, just the amount of athletes and now the defenses that you're going against, and they're used to seeing spread attacks. And so I just don't know that – that scheme advantage that you had, I just don't, I'm not convinced that it can excel as it could maybe in other conferences right now. And everyone knows, except for LSU last year, we'll talk about how much of a mess they were that you don't, you don't sit here and play man against the Mike Leach air raid. So it's an interesting team considering it's year two of Leach. What are your thoughts on the rebels? Yeah. Speaking of LSU. uh, So Leach comes out and beats the national champions by 10 points because Bo Pelini refuses to run <laughs> a defense that can defend the air raid. And then after that, Mississippi State didn't cover five games in a row because everybody figured out you could rush three and drop eight. And, and that was, uh, you know, the end of Mike Leach cutting videos on a wagon saying there's still room to, to come aboard, whatever the hell that was. What's your message to the team? Uh, don't do it anymore. 
for me, the, the quarterback battle is what I've been most interested in. I think the defense, the three, three, five, they returned their top seven tacklers uh, after losing Errol Thompson. Uh, you know, they were top 35 in coverage and in finishing drives, uh, but there was no havoc last year. They weren't getting the ball turned over uh, through the air. They weren't getting into the backfield of anybody. So that's got to improve this year, but on offense, the quarterback battle is what I've really been interested in. Now, Jack Abraham is the transfer in from Southern Miss, and that's the guy I want to bet on. Last year, he had six big-time throws, just one turnover-worthy play. He went 7-15 of and passes past 20 yards, but four of those were drops. Uh, I liked him at Southern Miss and was betting on Jack Abraham then. I would bet on him here in this air raid offense, but he hasn't played because of an injury or an ailment. They're being really nonspecific about what's going on in camp. Abraham didn't play in the scrimmage and he hasn't even practiced yet. So this is down to Will Rogers and to South Alabama uh, transfer Chance Lovertich. For those of you that want to Google Lovertich and uh, have your wives check your phones, you know, he transfers in from South Bama. You know, right now, I think Rogers is in the lead for that position. But uh, I mean, it's really a no play on Mississippi State until I see Jake Abraham getting the getting most of the snaps there. I think you're exactly right. If Jimmy Lake is a DC for Washington, can annually shut down Washington state in the air raid of Mike Leach. This is the sec. These defensive coordinators are smart enough to game plan for one week to shut you down. And, you know, there's other things with this offense that just, it, I don't think this is going to go away. Like even if they improve their success rate, Mississippi state finished 115th and finishing drives. Like this air raid is great for gaining yards, but once you get down past the 40 yard line or past the 20, you just don't have a lot of space to run the air raid. So I don't know if I'm going to see any improvement out of that number whatsoever. Uh, you know, it's a win total of uh, projected at 6.4 for me. That is over the six, but with Jack Abraham not playing the quarterback that I do want to bet on, uh, he may not be around for a couple of weeks. So depending on what this injury is, we can't, I can't find any information on whatsoever. It's a no play for me on Mississippi state. And uh, we'll see if SEC defenses continue to adjust. And if Mike Leach does anything about it, like maybe run the ball, you run the ball 26% of the time, Maybe run the ball once or twice. I don't know. So we'll see if the air raid continues to flounder in the SEC. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I do like the defense. As long as Watson could come in and replace Thompson in the middle at that linebacker spot, um, you're right. They could use more, more pressure, but they have just a really good corner duo that I like. It's maybe up there top three in the SEC. So I, I like the defense. It's just what, where is the ceiling of this offense? And – I'm not sure it's as high as some people might think it is just because it's year two of Mike Leach. If you look at the schedule, you know, they get Alabama and LSU at home. I mean, an LSU, you know, is going to be out for revenge. And then you look at their away games, fairly manageable, but they're also going to Texas A&M. But they have Vandy on the road. They have Auburn on the road, Memphis on the road, and Arkansas. So it's not an easy schedule. Obviously, they're in this division. Uh, I think six is about right. And keep in mind, they host Ole Miss to close the year. Don't be surprised if their win total and bowl eligibility hopes comes down to that game. So I agree. No reason really, to invest in Miss State from a win total perspective. Really interesting to see that Alabama is the game that comes off the bye. If you haven't heard Mike Leach before, at least he used to say this at Washington State, he hates bye weeks. Hates the bye, yeah. Because it, it gets the air raid out of sync, and now you're going to get Alabama off the bye. That's the team you don't want to face off of a bye. So interesting note there. Yep. All right, let's move on to – a team we just mentioned, an Ole Miss. The Ole Miss Rebels. Their win total, by the way, over 7.5 minus 110. The Lane train, Lane Kiffin, year two, did a, a phenomenal job of that offense. Again, comes in, implements his scheme on offense in a COVID-shortened year. Matt Corral, shine. 
he did have two games. It's, you just want to see you want to see fewer games where everything goes wrong. I mean, he had 14 interceptions last year. 11 of them came in two games. But the offense, I don't even know how much time we should spend on this this deadly no-huddle attack that Kiffin is just – I mean, Kiffin's a brilliant play caller. This offense is going to shine. Um, you know, you have Corral, Ely at running back, three upperclassmen return at wide receiver. Elijah Moore is gone, but, you know, Braylon Sanders steps in. This offense is, is awesome. The question becomes, can the defense get any stops, any at all? And they don't have to – with the way that they can score – they don't have to be a top 20 defense. Can they just be an average defense? And they were just so bad last year. They couldn't get any pressure. They were small up front. They couldn't defend the run. So they were ranked, at, I think, 126. If you look at a lot of their stats, 125th, 123rd. So how much can their D improve to keep up with what should be one of the best offenses in the country? Away games, Alabama, Mississippi State. Tennessee, Auburn, they start on a neutral against Louisville. What are your thoughts on the lane train in year two in Oxford? Yeah, I mean, the defense to me is not going to get any better from what I see from a recruiting standpoint and from what I see from a transfer portal standpoint. Uh, That rank of 125th in defensive success rate, that isn't going to get any better. And also the rank of 120th in defensive finishing drives, I don't think that's going to get any better. They did not do anything to improve the front seven in the offseason. And when you look at the defense, the leading tackler, Jacques Jones, he entered the portal and landed at Kentucky. So they lost their top tackler to a team inside the SEC. So, uh, you know, when you have a defense that's 100th and outside, you know, ring around 100th and coverage, tackling, havoc, and you don't do anything to approve it in the offseason, then you're absolutely putting it on your offense to carry all the water and get this team uh, to the promised land here. And I think it is important to talk about the offense because we all know they're great, right? We all understand that Matt Coral uh, did some pretty exciting things. He had a massive clunker of a game against Arkansas where he had no big-time throws and I think seven turnover-worthy plays. Now, if you throw that game out, if you just throw the Arkansas game out because Arkansas flashed a 3-3-5, something that nobody had done against, uh, against Lane Kiffin all year. Ole Miss came into that game, and they were like, oh, shit. You know, Arkansas's rushing three and dropping eight. No one's done this to us yet, and we don't know how to handle it. Matt Coral didn't even know what to do with a 3-3-5. Uh, but if you throw out that, Coral finished the season 24 big-time throws and just nine turnover-worthy plays. That's Heisman ratio. Those are Heisman-type numbers. Uh, so this is one of the most exciting offenses in college football. Their top offense, their top 20 in every category, a 76% return. Uh, you know, Coral's been considered a Heisman dark horse. Um, you know, he, he made it with his legs on designed runs. He made 27 missed tackles out of 51 rushing attempts. And I know that like a year ago, I feel like we were all clamoring for John Reese Plumlee. But these numbers, 27 missed tackles, that, I mean, you got it with Matt Coral. So the backfield's loaded, Jerry and Ely, Snoop Connor. Um, you know, the entire offensive line is back. There's plenty of, there's plenty of talent at wide receiver, even though that Elijah Moore is out. Uh, it, you know, I mean, this all just comes down to the defense. This is another season of boat racing. You're going to boat race Alabama. You're going to boat try to boat race Texas A&M. Everything's going to be a boat race. That Liberty game, I can't even wait to see. But listen, Ole Miss football is going to be must-see TV from an offensive standpoint. Matt Coral has an outside shot to win 
the Heisman Trophy, but I think that's an extreme dark horse case. For me, the better number is Ole Miss 15 to 1 to win the West. And why is that? Because their actual true odds of winning the West are 9 to 1, not 15 to 1. And you'd say, well, they got to beat Alabama. Of course they got to beat Alabama, but they got close last year. They gave Alabama and Nick Saban fits. And Kiffin is always going to find out a way to frustrate uh, Nick Saban. And he knows how to game plan against Pete Gooley. So really the two big, and they got a buy, they have a buy before that game. It is at Alabama, but they have a buy before. Yeah. I I mean, Kiffin can absolutely win that game. Uh, You look at Texas A&M, Texas A&M comes after the Liberty game. I'm just now realizing that I've been hyping up the fact that Liberty is going to come into that game into Oxford, probably undefeated, but how much does Lane Kiffin care when he might be able to win the SEC West the next week against Texas A&M. So uh, I think 15 to one is a great bet on the West because the odd, the true odds on that should be nine to one. You have an easy hedge spot right off the bat at Alabama. Uh, money line shouldn't be too high to get out of that 15 to one ticket, but uh, that's a game they'd have to win, but that's a good number 15 to one. Yeah. It's all going to come down to, I mean, they're relying on a lot of transfers that they don't wow you freshmen this, I mean, maybe the defense can improve marginally. I mean, it can't get much worse, but I, I just don't see it. So yeah, they're going to be in, in shootouts for days. The offense will be awesome to watch. Uh, but if the defense just improves a bit and you go from, you know, some of these numbers, 125th, 126th, and obviously the schedule overall gets easier because you're playing some, you know, non-conference games against Austin P. But just in conference play, if the defense can improve a little bit, get a few key stops, force a few key turnovers, all of a sudden the ceiling for this team is really high and, and you're buying into the upside. So I don't hate that bet. All right. That covers six of the seven teams in the SEC West. That leaves one team in LSU. The LSU Tigers. One of the most intriguing teams from a preseason preview perspective that is out there. So in order to help you and us preview LSU, we're bringing in longtime friend of this podcast and prior podcast that we've done, Brody Miller. Well, you know, first of all, we're coming. Any questions? All right, we're now joined by good friend of the podcast, Brody Miller. You can find him on Twitter at Brody A. Miller. Covers LSU for The Athletic. We like to talk to him preseason, sometimes during the season, and hopefully for his sake and all of you LSU fans out there in the postseason. What's going on, Brody? How are things? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm always thrilled to be on, but then I, I'm actually bummed because I've been waiting for your SEC West pod to come out, and then I realized I have to be on that. So I'm, I'm a little bummed I don't get to listen to it, but I, I'm excited. I think before we get into SEC West, we have to give you a little breathing room to talk about Indiana, right? Because you're Indiana. You. Yes. <laughs> Let, let's talk about – I mean, do you have a take? We've, we've cut the Big Ten podcast. We took the Indiana under. We think there's going to be regression. Do you have anything for your – Old home, old home team, uh, Indiana Hoosiers. I know I gave I gave you flack the second I got an alert in the Action Network that you did that, but I'm also like, you're not wrong in a million years. My, I even said to you, I think I said they could be exactly as good as last year in every single way, and you you told me they go seven and five. I'm like that makes sense. Like I do not think the other teams are going to be as bad as they were, and I don't think IU's going to catch every break like they did. Like I feel like they're in a really really good place. They're deep and experienced and all that, but they're not going to go ten and two. 
the good thing is for Indiana fans out there is yeah, it's a number thing. It's a regression, but there's still a lot to be excited about the program. Absolutely. And you know, I covered Kevin Wilson taking them to a bowl game. And when I was in college, it was a monumental moment in no world. Have I yet lost perspective that seven and five would not be fantastic. Cause it still is. Absolutely. Sure. We got to talk about some LSU. We have lots of things moving on here. We got coordinators of Pelini's out. That was a complete disaster. We've got scheme changes. We've got new offensive coordinators. Let me start off by asking about Jake Pete's, the new offensive coordinator, the stories that I could get. I was looking for scrimmage information. And what I found was Jake Pete's flipping tables all over the uh, locker room. Tell me about the, um, the the commentary that we want to replicate the Joe Brady passing game coordinator and Joe Burrow 2019 effect. And can Jake Pete's kind of do that? Yeah, it's it's bordering on cringeworthy, but at the same time, it's from the second they went into this offseason at Ogeron was relatively transparent, which, as you guys know, is rare in this field. That he was like, hey, we're trying to get back to 2019. They literally called Joe Brady and asked him, like, who could run this offense well? And he said, all right, Jake Pete's my quarterback coach. And obviously, DJ Mangus was on staff in 2019 and is one of Brady's best friends. Like, go hire those two guys. And that's what they did. And, and yeah, I think it's overly simplistic to say they're just getting back to 2019 and they should probably tone down that messaging. But I think the key is, and I think there's a theme in both hires we're going to talk about, is there was a clear theme of get younger, get sharper, get guys who know how to connect with the roster better, all those things, because quite frankly, a lot of coaches who I respect, that staff last year was like 60% guys in white and in their 60s. You know, it just wasn't, a, and there was some some uh, lack of a cultural strength in that locker room, I guess. A, a disconnect. Yeah, disconnect. You. you're the writer. Yeah. And and I think, you know, Pete's for all the question marks that you're going to have whenever you have a coordinator who has never called plays. I think he's a guy who at least put the miles in, you know, like Toronto Jones has probably more question marks. Pete's is a guy who's been on really good staffs. He's been around. He's been a real he's been on saving staffs and all that. Like I have a decent amount of faith. He can run Brady's offense well. He can add a sharpness that just wasn't there without Brady last year under Ensminger. And I, and I think he's just going to lead to a, uh, I don't know, just a, a better quarterback room and a better energy because you use the mention of him flipping tables and things like that. Yeah. There are like a lot of those stories of him coming in and just like calling Miles Brennan like every week to just like talk and connect and all those things. And those are corny and I acknowledge they're corny, but considering so much of the problems of 2020 just had to do with those kinds of things, I, I don't think they're nothing. Well, you, you mentioned the quarterback room coming into the year there, you know, you would assume offensive changes. We're going to have a quarterback competition. Well, now that picture is a lot clearer. You have an injury and a transfer. Um, the depth might be in question now, but as far as Johnson now being the clear cut number one, who did you anticipate winning the job? Um, you know, I've, I've actually read some dif- some differences of opinion in that aspect. Do you think it actually ends up helping them now get the clarity beforehand? And just what are your thoughts on the quarterback position headed into the season? Yeah, I think you put that well, because I, I, in no world am I going to claim this is a net positive. It's not. You just lost, you know, you're too deep now. But I I have been under the impression since spring it was going to be Max Johnson the whole time. And, and it's not even – I think in my, my co-host and IT, Bob Bear, we used to always talk about, I don't think who won the job was going to change my pro- projection of this team, you know, all things healthy and all that. I think both those guys are good enough to start for a good amount of SEC teams. They're both 
pretty good quarterbacks, but I think they love Johnson as the guy because they, they put so much focus on processing ability and, and being able to make the quick read. Cause that's what Burrow did so well. Burrow didn't have the arm that Brennan has. He, he was just sharper than everybody. And we saw all those things. So they love that about Johnson because they do all this like crazy testing and he does test off the charts in those categories. He's very mobile, which they really like, and they're not going to like be running an option or anything, but that that's a, that's a plus. And this is me reading between the lines, but still you just hear things about how Johnson's a little closer with the receivers or like putting in those extra things, even before this job was decided. I think the team kind of rallies behind him a little bit more and you can't just gloss over the fact that they were three and five went into Florida with like 49 scholarship players available because of COVID, like they were depleted and that season's a disaster. And I know, but there is something too. like, they had no reason winning any of those last two games. They went to Florida and Max Johnson won that game, won the Ole Miss game, looked great. And all of a sudden I think he just won a lot of people over. So that's my long winded way of saying, I think it was always going to be Johnson and it's still a net negative, you know, but You'd, like you said, you do have all of camp now. Jake Peets can now tailor his entire offense perfectly, knowing who the quarterback is going to be, all those things. Receivers and quarterbacks can get the rhythm, all that. So I think I think there's some positives in that sense for LSU. It's just obviously if he goes down, you're in trouble. But the way I tend to view these things is if he goes down the season's – when a starting quarterback goes down, your season's in trouble regardless. Man, that might be too simplistic, but sometimes how I view it. So yeah. one one question I got to get in though is that the scrimmage had some outstanding numbers from Newsmeyer. Uh yeah. is it and I think that leads me into another question so if you want to two part this we can Stingley and Ricks weren't on the field. Mike Jones Jr is in <laughs> serious jeopardy of not starting. So Newsmeyer puts up these numbers and rave reports from everything that I from every single word I read out of your tweets and your write-ups. <laughs> Uh, over at the athletic, uh, guys, check out Brody. You have to, uh, but it was Newsmeyer going up maybe second, third strings. Uh, was that how those numbers were posted? And, and then kind of, can you tell us what's going on with Stingley and Ricks? Yeah. With Newsmeyer, I, I, yes, he's going against mainly the second teamers, but, but the only, I've, the reason I'm not like back to the Max Johnson thing, the reason I'm not panic moding about Brennan is let's remember what the situation was last year when Brennan went down and they had two true freshmen who weren't even like that highly touted guys. You know, they weren't like top 100 guys. That was a real panic situation. Nussmeyer is an actual dude. Like he is a, a guy they think is going to be a star. He's a top 100 prospect early enrollee blew them away all spring. He threw, he had some real freshman mistakes in the spring game, but like, he's a guy, you know, he's going to be something. So I, I think, you know, Nussmeyer being the backup, and I know that's not even your question, but just an aside, yeah. like, I think that, that yes, if Johnson goes down, it's a problem, but they actually like the depth with Nussmeyer a little bit. Back to the defensive back thing. Yes, Derek Stingley, that was expected to just be like a few days. Now it's like, well, it's a week and your alarm should go off whenever something happens like that. Absolutely. Especially considering he was banged up pretty much all of last year. You know, like he, he was not healthy last season. So you do have to be concerned being like, oh, is this going to be a thing? But in terms of the actual prognosis and all that, like he should be back completely fine by probably mid next week or something like that. Like I don't, if I if he's not in the UCLA game, I will apologize to you guys so hardly. But he should be available. Ricks is already back at practice. Dwight McLaughlin is the third outside corner. That's actually one you got to really follow. I think he's more later in camp. You got to weigh it on. So you do have to worry about that. It's like that weird thing of you probably have the two best corners in the country when you're healthy, but you don't love that that depth right now. You're getting banged up and all that. So I, I'm not worried about corner. I think the injury stuff is them just being like, 
I'm not going to push Derek Stingley to practice and all that. We saw that a lot right. in 2019, actually. But but still, it's something to keep an eye on, just the idea that a guy's had durability concerns now. Yeah, well, sticking on that defense, last year, and just as an aside, we'll probably get into this in, with some other teams, too. I don't know how many times I've read, read this is the worst defense in school history from a points-per-game perspective for so many teams. Well, yeah, because, you you know, you play an all-SEC schedule. You don't, have, you don't get to beat Southeast Louisiana, uh, you know, 100 to nothing. Um, but without any question, LSU's defense was was bad last year, right? But on the surface, you have you have you have pieces to build around. You have arguably one of the best, or if not the best, corner duo in all of college football. You have some dudes, as you mentioned, up front. You do lose Cox at linebacker in the NFL, but you bring in some highly regarded guys at the linebacker position. Safety, I think, would be the biggest question. Does this really just come down to health? in some aspects is it effort and then scheme and then if those three things all work out do you believe that the talent will really shine on the LSU defensive side what are your thoughts there yeah I I think it's like you just can't leave out how just 2020 I do not defend any of the stuff at LSU like they deserve to be blamed for it and they should be but there is a little bit of that perfect storm of just shit, you know, where it's like, yep. all right, guys, like you win a title, you lose everybody. Then you, so you're replacing 20 starters essentially. And it's a pandemic and you just bomb those that Bobo Pelini hire, which we'll get to in a second. It's just, and then you have the civil rights. I mean, the like the racial equality stuff going on that they mishandled absolutely, which made that locker room worse. And it was just this like perfect storm. Then the opt-outs of everything that could have gone wrong did. So there is a part of me that when you watch that film last year, and I watch it sometimes a decent amount, and it, it was ineptitude. It was just nobody knowing what they are doing so it's it's like I don't even look at that and evaluate the 2021 defense that way unless you still believe those players are just dumb and that's a different thing but I don't I just don't think that I, I don't I, I think there are so many issues there and some of it is the pandemic and yeah not be able to meet person person the things you were able to do before and the Pelini hire but the Pelini hire it's just the safeties were lost at all times and that made the corners look bad and guys were 20 yards open and the linebackers, Damone Clark, a guy who was supposed to be their next great linebacker. He was hyped as anybody who's just on his heels at all times confused, you know? So I, I, I do kind of unfit. Like I hate, again, I, my buzzword today is don't be overly simplistic, but it's true. It's like, I do part of me does believe that if you just fix the, just, ineptitude and get back to the just knowing what you're doing simplify this is LSU their defense is loaded with five stars and four stars and I'm not saying they're going to be elite but you should by default get back into like the top six in the SEC or something and then you factor in the extreme depth they have right now I mean and they're really talented in my opinion like linebacker huge concern last year I don't know what's going to happen but I do think they're five deep there or safety I'm with you is still a question mark but corner I still love those corners D-line literally nine deep like it's like they lost Glenn Logan a four-year starter at D-Tackle and I didn't even flinch so overall my answer is I think it should be the strength of the team that defense should be really solid but you can't just wash away last year uh, but I, I think the Durante Jones hire so much about it was simplify and just get a guy who knows how to teach <laughs> get a guy who knows how to get them on the same page like teachers his big buzzword that he's apparently good at and the word, you know, not going to judge until I see it in a game, but the word these past seven months has been 
there is a clear difference in just guys knowing what they're doing, flying all over the field, just kind of being back to being on the same page. So I think you'll see a huge increase. Do I know if Dante Jones can scheme with Lane Kiffins of the world? I don't know yet. I really don't. But I think this defense will be back to being really talented and just competent again. So one thing that I was excited about from LSU from a transfer portal perspective was bringing in Mike Jones Jr. And for those of you that don't know, him and Skowski were running the linebacker core for Clemson for years, and Jones was ranked fourth by PFF as the fourth best linebacker in coverage rankings. So when he came to LSU through the portal, I thought, holy cow, with these two shutdown corners and you got a guy in the middle that's you know fourth in the nation in coverage from a linebacker standpoint – no one's going to be able to throw against LSU. This is something you're going to need against Ole Miss. This is something you're going to need against Alabama. Now it comes out that Mike Jones Jr. might not even start. And Edo saying, listen, you know, it's a different scheme for him. And now he's got to take on offensive linemen. Uh, he's having struggles learning the scheme and, and, and fitting into the system. How does the, is there a disconnect here? Like didn't Jones know what he was getting into and didn't Edo know what he was getting to when he brought Jones over? Like, what am I, am I missing something here or what's going on with Mike Jones Jr.? Yeah, that is a really, I think there's like a multi-layered thing happening there where Mike Jones Jr. And I think I have to start here. Mike Jones Jr. is like known as just like, he was voted by Clemson is like the, player people want to interview the most like just a really incredibly smart talkative guy so in turn you got a really rare interview on i believe that was monday or sunday where he was just transparent he's like yeah man like i i had a wake-up call when i got in the box you know i got beat a few times and all that And like players don't normally tell you that so then i follow up with ed about it and ed's like yeah you know he had some wake-up calls he's going up against 360 pound guys like yeah like and and it's that thing where it's like Ed out of context makes it sound like Mike Jones is just out of it, but there is something to the idea that I do not think he is as of right now in that starting rotation. It's tricky because I still think he's going to see the field. He's going to be a third down linebacker. If I had to guess, I just don't know if he is the core guy there and that that can be spun different ways because I do think their linebacker room is if not spectacular, and I don't think it's been spectacular, it is deep because you do have say Damone Clark, who was a, I will say a, a, a problem player last year. He's still absurdly talented. I mean, he is a physical freak. If you believe that that can get fixed with the coaching change and all that stuff, I've heard he's still going to start this year. Then you have Navante Q. Bug Strong, who number one Juco linebacker in the country. I heard just off the charts things about him this spring. He's kind of a thumper guy, but pretty athletic. Was covering those Ju- Mississippi Juco guys in the slots sometimes, which, as you know, is, is the real deal. So it's like I, I think I get the sense those two are going to start. And that isn't necessarily Mike Jones isn't good enough. But he does have a ways to go playing in the box. And I don't think, I don't think he expected to come in here and not really be in the rotation as, as we thought he would. So I think that is a tricky thing. Then there's that other part of you that always has to say, why is the guy who is starting at Clemson leaving? You know, there's that too. So I think linebacker is going to be fine. I don't look at the Mike Jones, not cracking the rotation thing as a red flag. It's just a really interesting storyline to me, but I, I do think they're deep there because even, I even mentioned Micah Baskerville who, now, again, not a wow player, but if you if you're a nerd and followed that team last year, which I know you are, like once he got in the starting rotation, they did go from like awful to below average. When when Micah Baskerville became the starting linebacker, he kind of fixed a lot of things. So he's another guy who can rotate in. I like the depth. Long story short, I like the depth at linebacker. I'm just really curious to see what happens with Mike Jones. 
We could never tell if it was the talent or the fact that Pellini had to what we call dumb down, strip down the defensive calls. I mean, that it, it was <laughs> a headache trying to manage that last year. I know. And I think we could just repeat me saying that over and over again. This podcast would be fine. <laughs> it's me just being like, I can't tell if it's Pellini or the talent. Yeah. So I guess, Brody, I guess we'll start off with with John Emery and Tyrion Davis-Price. You know, there to me, there was nothing in the advanced stats from yards after contact, elusiveness, missed tackles. It really stood out to me. Is there anything in the backfield? I should, like, I'm not looking for the second coming of Clyde, uh, you know, Clyde Edwards-Lar coming back. Uh, but is there anything in this backfield that can establish the run, drain some clock, and keep players like Dorian Thompson-Robinson off the field? It, are we seeing any of that in the backfield? I think the talent in the backfield is is there. It's but it's this three year long storyline that's been going on at Ostron being kind of frustrated with that room where John Emery came in as the number two running back in the country. He was supposed to be this superstar next Fournette type guy. And him and Davis Price both have been fine. They have been perfectly fine, but they have, you know, just disciplined things or putting that extra work or pass protection they've struggled with or receiving. They just haven't become those guys. And Emory's shown flashes. I mean, you look at that, the Bama game last year, the Vanderbilt mm-hmm. game, where it's like that guy looks like he's a superstar. But there's six out of 10 games where he was under four yards per carry. So it's like I, I do think he's just a lot of consistency you're looking for there. The fascinating thing, though, is I just keep having people in the program be like, trust me, it's going to be John Emery, and he's going to show you this year. People who, you know, haven't defended John Emery before. I take that with a grain of salt. I'm on year three of like being like, is this going to be the year he does it? So I don't know yet. But there's been a lot of talk that he's finally developed as a receiver. He had to get LASIK about a year and a half ago, and I think that really fixed his eyesight. So I, I do think that that is going to improve. I think he maybe he's working harder, all those things. But there's I, I had one coach tell me, Davis Price is still going to be maybe the main guy early. And yeah, he averages like four and a half yards carrying a sleep, it seems like. It's just not very explosive. But they said Emery's going to get on the field more because he can do more. So I think that's really big is that he might actually take that leap as a receiver because his his ability to make people miss is, is Edwards Hilaire-esque, where it's just yeah. like he really can make those plays. So you're waiting on that upside. And the other wrinkle in this is the story of camp has been these two, you know, top 150 freshman running backs, Corey Kiner and Armani Goodwin, who are literally dominating camp right now and, and just look like stars. And I don't even think they're going to be in the top two yet, which, again, is saying they're still confident in those juniors. But it's just another thing, like they're deep there. I think the real answer to all this is, and I know you think of this, but is what's the offensive line? Offensive line. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't know. I actually will flat out say on this podcast, I don't know. Because last year, yeah, it's the whole thing where you're bringing everyone back and everyone's like, oh, they're going to be great. Maybe it might. But (laughs) they were a really weird offensive line last year where there's probably three games you could pick where they look great. Like they won them the game. I think South Carolina stands out where it's like really good four other games where they were a disaster. So it's, which is it? I, I just don't know. So I, I think this offensive line isn't exactly the kind that's going to get some amazing push against the SEC West. So maybe that's what the answer really comes down to. And I, and I just flat out don't know. Yeah. And Max Johnson is a lefty. So your blindside tackle is now on the other side too. So it, which at least is a positive. That's a fifth year starter on in Austin. Right. Yeah. Cause so, Rosenthal yeah. left on the other end. Yeah. Um, good call. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, all right. So we've talked it. It's, I'm glad that we spent a lot of time on LSU because it's, I think that they're one of the most fascinating teams and going into this year, because you know, you had national championship dominant team then last year and you throw in all the variables we talked about. Now you have, you know, first time coordinators and just a lot of change. You had a quarterback competition, but now you know who the quarterback is. So just a lot of unknowns and variables, win total 
currently sitting at over eight and minus one thirty ish. So uh, to wrap this up quickly, give me your your ceiling, um, the floor. What happens if everything goes wrong, um, and then a win total prediction? Yeah. I- I mean, you guys are so much smarter about this than me, so I don't. I'm not telling you anything you guys don't know. But they are. It's such a weird one for me because they like they're so deep, so talented. All those things were on paper they should be just in a vacuum, just pure talent, favored or a toss up in 11 of 12 games. Like, and maybe I'm completely wrong about that. But you know, A&M's probably a complete toss up because it's home. I don't know, but. And if you're optimistic on them, yeah, their ceiling's 11 and one. Like they have the literal talent to get there. I am high on Max Johnson, all those things. That's really what it comes down to. And there's that factor where it's like you're debating between, and I think I forget which one of you tweeted this, but like they're projected to be in one score games like often. So you're going to lose a hand. You you just assume, you know, they're going to lose one or two of those. But it's just the schedule just matches up where I think Florida takes a step back and it's home. I think Auburn takes a step back. And it's home. Um, UCLA, I got I think they're really feisty. I like this UCLA team, but still just like like LSU is just more talented. And it's the first week of the year, and LSU is more all that experience too. I so it's like I just can't think of many games where I am sure LSU loses except Alabama. If anything, I'm more scared of the the old miss game on the road or like a Kentucky on the road. Those almost frighten me more. So my ceiling's 11. your floor is this is where I'm probably ignorant, but my floor for me is eight just because the schedule, just because the experience and all that, which is why I always kind of lean toward the over and why I was just kind of surprised by your pick on, even though I respect yeah. the hell out of you guys, because I was just, I just don't see that many things where I'm sure they're going to lose, but we just saw them go five and five. So what the hell am I talking about? <laughs> so you're well, saying, I, I don't hate that either, but you're, so you're, what are you going to do? Are you going to predict? Somewhere in the middle, are you going to predict nine or ten as your official prediction? My official is ten. I mean, barring okay. some of these durability things we're kind of watching right now, my pick is actually ten, and I'm a negative guy. <laughs> yeah, you're closer I, to the pro- you're closer to the program than than us, and uh, we yeah. respect your opinion. That's why we have you on. So anyone <laughs> that was debating LSU, I don't, I don't like the under. Um, yeah, I didn't bet the over. Uh, it's a tough <laughs> team for me to get a read on with all the moving pieces. It's a pass for me. Um, yeah. but I so but it's one of those teams. Why well, I wanted to get your opinion because Colin liked the under. You can make a case for why it's all going to go wrong. You yep. can make a case for why it's all going to go right. That's why I think that they're uh, a fascinating team. But by the way, you might have to come up uh, uh, LSU at Kentucky. I'll be there, First man. Time, I know you might. I'm saying you might have to come up a, a day, a day or two early. I don't know your schedule and stay with me, and we can go out. But well, it's the, funny uh, you say that. Actually, time, my entire family. I will be there a day early to go hang out at Keeneland with all my cousins who are UK alums. Well, I'm a mile from Keeneland. It's the first time I'll see it comes here since we're in business. Um, when Kentucky won 43-37 in overtime, it was like one of the Kentucky football doesn't have many. Remote, people talk about that win like it was two years ago. Um, so I'm I'm, ex- I'm actually excited for us. I was like, oh, excuse me. I was looking at the schedule. I was like, when's the last time? And I looked it up. It was 2007. Um, Colin, do you got one last thing before we get out of here? No, I mean, to, to Brody's point, I, there are a lot of coin flip games. And when I looked at it, I believe SP Plus made it like seven coin flips. I made it eight coin flips. And when I went through that number, it's hard to take a win total when there's that many number of coin flips. But you have to dissect each one of those teams. Over half those teams have very strong established run games. Tank Bigsby is still going to get a lot of touches and carry a lot of guys across the first down marker. Dorian Thompson Robinson is the 
tip of the spear of a Chip Kelly attack that really is based on the ground before it goes to the air. There's just other teams on this schedule, the Matt Coral on the ground, like some of the numbers that he posted in design runs, I'm not even talking about scrambling. You look at his designed runs. So, you know, a big part of the handicap with LSU is, is are you going to be able to stop the run? I have no worry about them stopping the pass at all. So, you know, that's the handicap and we'll see how they do. Yeah, and I, th- I think for me, it's yeah. by the D line. You know, I think it just comes down to that. But but it's a completely valid question. All right. Well, before we get before we get you out of here, and we let we don't want to let Colin keep talking to get on our LSU fans' bad side because we've had such a good interview about LSU. <laughs> but if people, we were talking about going to Lexington. If people go down to an LSU game, which I say you have to do once, and you're like, got to go to a Saturday night game um, at LSU. What's one place underrated? Uh, overrated, the places to go if you're going for one time, uh, somewhere to eat. What's one place that someone should keep in mind if they're making a trip for a game? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Um, so I have a D, de- I mean, you, there's your classics, right? Like you're I'm trying to think, you're like go to uh, Gino's for like an amazing meal or you go to like Mike Anderson's right down the streets, great seafood, all that kind of stuff. There's plenty of those. Um, there's one that's like a little off the beaten path a little bit, like 40 out, but it's called Middendorf's and it's like the best catfish you'll ever have. But mm. if you're looking for just like a different BRQ is my favorite restaurant, Baton Rouge. It's like a, it's almost like high scale comfort barbecue type food. And that's my pick for sure. But also if you need a cocktail, the river room downtown is where uh, it's my favorite cocktail spot. And also where there's been like a, a Louisiana legislator, Blacher brawl in the middle of the night. So to really get the Louisiana experience, I think river room's a great pick. I, I've been to Baton Rouge as a Razorback fan and full Razorback gear. I had a battery thrown at me and I haven't been back what? since. So <laughs> this is Jerry DiNardo days. It was a little bit is wild on Thanksgiving. A lot of tension. Uh, yeah. yeah, there was a lot of tension back then. So these days they're in their golden era, man. Three titles yeah. in 20 years. They don't let you hang out. <laughs> they're happy. Drink, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. As always, Bernie, I will see you when you get to Lexington. We may have you on before then. Plug anything you want to plug before we get you out of here. Absolutely. You guys can follow me at Brody Miller on Twitter. And I uh, had a few stories out this week, one on Kayshawn Booty, the, you know, the next star wide receiver at LSU and why he's kind of a different guy. So hopefully people can check that out. But uh, thanks for having me, guys. Always, always my favorite show to come on by far. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. And everybody go read his Insmigger stuff. It's some, it's some fascinating off-field stuff that is really a quality read. So I really appreciate you coming on, Brody. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks again to Brody and hopefully one time – in your lives, you get to plan and a trip to LSU. Colin, you've uh, you've made one before, right? Well, Arkansas used to play LSU on Thanksgiving weekend, and it was always a day game. So I went down there in full Arkansas gear and cheered. And I have to say, there's a big difference between the LSU fan base and the Texas fan base. Because in that same year, in 2003, I went to Texas, I went to Austin, and Cedric Cobbs and Matt Jones just blew Texas out of the water. And Texas fans shook my hand. We had beers. We had a good time. Everybody on 6th Street was welcoming. LSU, I feared for my life. Uh, There were some batteries being thrown at us. Uh, There were some threats being made. Like, it was hostile environment. So, not sure I'm going to be making my way back down to LSU. And if I do make it down there, it definitely won't be in any Arkansas head-to-toe gear. Yeah, it's... uh... I think it's, it's Saturday night Death Valley. If you have a chance to do it once, uh, I especially with LSU's like in contention, even if they're not, I bet it's just one of the most electric yeah. atmospheres. Fellow Action Network uh, team member uh, Michael Leboff, who does great stuff with our NHL stuff, he went to the LSU game, uh, but he he wore full Islanders gear. 
I can't even imagine what those fans thought about him in full Islanders uniform. So they probably <laughs> left him alone, thought he was a lunatic. There's no question about that. Before we get out of here, we do have one last order of business, and that is three and out. One, two, three. Let's make it a quick three and out. First down, favorite SEC West win total. I'll start here. I'm going Alabama under 11 and a half. Mainly, it's a, a numbers game for me. I make it closer to 10 and a half, so you're going to full win value. I mean, a little less when you include the juice. I played it under 11 and a half minus 115. Talked about all the changes on offense, offensive line, new quarterback. You lose so much talent of receiver the past two years. New assistants, new offensive coordinator. Three road games where I could potentially see them dropping one. I think they end up dropping at Texas but if they lost at Florida, I think Florida's going to take a step back. We'll talk about that in the SEC. Wouldn't shock me losing the Swamp. They lose the last game of the year at Auburn. Wouldn't shock me. Uh, but again, this is just a numbers play. I think Alabama ends up dropping one of those road games. Uh, and look, Ole Miss, you have Ole Miss out there. You have Miami. There's some potential landmines on the schedule. With all the changes, I think the defending national champs drop at least one. Uh, where are you going for your favorite win total? Yeah, I'm going to go LSU under eight. Uh, I think there's just too much going on here that is not good news to me. But besides the new coordinators, uh, besides, you know, Miles Brennan going down, we think Max Johnson is going to be okay. There's still some question marks about running the ball. There's question marks about the offensive line. Derek Stingley still isn't practicing. I, I appreciate everybody uh, hopping, you know, in my DMs and asking me if Stingley is a, a Heisman dark horse contender, but he's not even on the field. And you know, it, there's uh, I thought Mike Jones Jr. was going to be a great fit for the defense. Turns out he's not. We have offensive coordinators flipping tables to get people's attention, and then they can't stop talking about Burrow and Joe Brady and about how they want the offense to be more like what it was in 2019. But you don't have the hands in the backfield to match Edwards Alar and what he was able to do. And I mean, that was Joe Burrow's get out of jail free card uh, in the backfield. And And I think we have to mention that Joe Burrow, like, all-time accuracy, like, no, that's not going to be repeated. I, Max Johnson can, I mean, have a great season, and it's impossible to touch what Joe Burrow did. So there's a lot of that narrative going around, injuries going on in the defensive line, although, you know, Brody said that he's that he thinks they're nine deep and they're fine. I think there's some issues with running the ball. I think there's issues stopping the run. And for me, there's just too many coin flips on this schedule that have teams that are very efficient in running the ball. Tank's big, Tank Bigsby for Auburn can run the ball. Dorian Thompson-Robinson from UCLA can run the ball. Texas A&M can run it down your throat all day. There's just too many coin flip games where there's advantages over LSU. I'll take under eight. Brody's not going to be happy with that one, but let's move on <laughs> to second down. Favorite SEC West-related future. Connor, I'll let you start this one where you want to go. Yeah, I'm not going to go very long. I'll just say Ole Miss, 15 to 1. The numbers should be 9 to 1. And I think really you have to recognize an edge in numbers, whether it's money lines or totals or, uh, you know, even during in season when you see a money line that's just outrageously high. And this is just one of those things. It should be 9 to 1 on Ole Miss. And there's really only two games that they need to concentrate on. The first one being Alabama, come off of a bye. Lane Kiffin held serve. Now, Stucky and I, watch tennis. He watches more tennis than I do, but there's this thing in, in men's tennis called serve bots where it's just whoever serving, just, you know, point, 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 point. Lane Kiffin was able to do that with Alabama last year. And that was the best offense we've seen maybe in college football history. So now that offense is going to go against an Alabama offense that isn't going to be as good as last year. So 
if Lane Kiffin can continue to boat race teams and nobody has an offense like his, there's a lot of value in that. Uh, that old Miss 15 to one should be nine to one. I'd buy it all the way down to there. I'm going to build off of that. Uh, you know, I, well, I would say first, I don't hate it, but I'm thinking if Ole Miss does win the division, go to the SEC championship game. And if they're going to beat Alabama with that defense, they're going to have to put up silly numbers, which means mm-hmm. Matt Corral is going to have to put up silly numbers. And then they go mm-hmm. to the SEC championship game makes his Heisman case. If you assume they can do that more intriguing, but I'm not going to go there. Just throwing that out there. I'm going Texas and m six to one to win the division. Now that's just based on them beating their chances of beating Alabama at home. If they do that, I think they're going to have a really good shot to win this division because that will mean the quarterback position has worked out if they can win that game. And I'm buying the upside on Texas Santa because if the quarterback position and the offensive line don't come together, you know, not only are they going to not beat Alabama, but there's a good chance they don't go over nine and a half wins. But I just want no part of buying, buying this team from a win total perspective. I'd rather just either buy the upside or leave them alone. If the quarterback and offensive line just comes together, they have the defensive skill position talent is super impressive. Jimbo Fisher's fourth year, the town on this roster, if one of those quarterbacks can work out, uh, I think is worthy of a shot considering they get an Alabama team that I might, that I think is a, is a bit vulnerable. So six to one Texas A&M to win the division and get to the SEC championship. I agree with you. There's a, there's opportunities here to take on Alabama within the division. Colin went Ole Miss. I'm going to go Texas A&M. That's it's a really good spot, though, for Texas A&M. If you look at Texas A&M and Ole Miss heads up, that's going to catch Ole Miss straight off that Liberty game. And uh, Texas A&M projected minus four at Ole Miss. So, I mean, that's that's it's a really good spot, and it's a good number. All right, third down, we're going to do something special. We already talked about pretty much our predictions for the division. You know, Alabama's clearly the favorite. Ole Miss and Texas A&M worth taking shots on, whatever tickles your fancy. But here's a, a special SEC West third down. And we're going to come back to this. Our producer, Matt Mitchell, will play this clip if it doesn't come true. Colin, I need you to promise one game that you will not, that you do not and will not play Arkansas. And we're going to see if we can, you can stick to your word and we don't see it come through on the app at any point in the season. Take a look at their schedule. What's a game where you're like, I am not betting them. I will not. And I do not want to. I will play the Arkansas Pine Bluff game. All right. Colin will not bet (laughs) Arkansas, Arkansas Pine Bluff. You'll have to stay tuned for our, FC yes or no. All right, now I can't wait for that week, that Arkansas. Are you going to go to that game? <laughs> no, actually, uh, that game's down a little rock, so a little bit of a drive here from Tulsa. And uh, turns out my uh, my closest friend is in a the, one of the biggest bands in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I'm going to go see him play that night and uh, be watching Arkansas Pine Bluff on my phone. Well, that's a good a good week to, to take off from yeah. watching every play of an Arkansas game. All right. Thanks, as always, to Colin for joining me. Thanks again to Brody Miller. He's always great to have on. Make sure you check out his stuff on Twitter at Brody A. Miller and at The Athletic. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you subscribe. Big Bets on Campus podcast, wherever you listen to a podcast, make sure you subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, tell an enemy. All that is really helping us grow the podcast. You've enabled us to have this channel where we can produce exclusive college football content which i'm excited about colin's excited about our producers and i hope all of you are as well but we thank you again for listening and for all of your support we will be back tomorrow with an sec east preview and then before you know it week zero's here then week one and we're in the mix thanks again for listening and we'll catch y'all later cheers peace out